0: James Kandasamy. Hey, audience and listeners. This is James Kandasamy
1: from Achieve Wealth Podcast. Today, we have Tim Brads from Legacy Wealth Holdings. Tim is a multifamily syndicator slash sponsor who owns almost 3,200 units, almost valued at $250 million in value. Hey, Tim, welcome to the show. James, appreciate you having me, buddy. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Happy to have you here. We've been trying to get you on the show for some time and we have been playing tag on the on the appointments. That's good. So can you tell me which market are you focusing on right now?
2: Uh, I'm, I'm actually in six different markets, six different states. Uh, i pretty heavy in the Southeast though. Mo- majority of my property, about 70% of my property is in South Carolina and Georgia, but I'm also in Ohio, which is where I live. And then I'm also in uh, some Texas, Oklahoma, and I got a couple of vacation rentals down in Florida as well. Okay. Okay. Without going too
1: much into detail, just quickly, how did you start? And then how did you scale uh, to 3,200 units
2: within how many years? Yeah, man. I mean, uh, I was going through college when the last market cycle was going gangbuster. So '03 to '07, i I'm going through college. Everybody said, if you want to make money, get involved in real estate. I ended up moving out to New York City because my brother was living out there. And I became a commercial um, real estate agent for businesses, you know? So I brokered leases and I brokered a lease that was 400 square feet in, uh, in Manhattan and it was $10,000 a month. <laughs> and so I was like, wrong side of the coin. I need to be owning real estate, not brokering it. Right. Correct. So I, I got into a lot of the residential stuff. I think a lot of investors get into real estate because of the allure of passive income and residual income but then many of us get stuck doing this transactional stuff of uh-huh. flipping houses and wholesaling and and uh, I I went through that same phase. You know, I thought I had to stockpile my own cash. I didn't understand that you could syndicate that you could raise private money and bring in equity partners and uh, hire sponsors to then co-sign on loans. I I didn't know that that was possible. So I I went through the whole residential side of things and um, bought my first apartment building in 2000 end of 2012. So just shy of like seven years ago. Um, It was a little eight unit building. And I fixed it all up, put tenants in place. And I was like, man, I'm making better returns on this than I am flipping houses and it's way less headaches. And so I bought another eight unit and kind of built up a portfolio, about 150 units with some partners. That partnership ended up going, going bad a few years later. And in, in 2015, I ended up liquidating everything and uh, and then just going back out on my own. And so I started on my own um, and and just kind of partnered up with a couple of, uh, people that they are just started raising money for different projects. And, uh, I partner up with good operators and bring money to those projects and help sponsor those loans. Or i start buying my own properties here locally in Cleveland. And, um, over the past four years, pretty much in August of 2015, I started buying my own stuff. So it's been right at four years now. Um, I built up a little over 3200 units, 3,207 units as of today, about $251 million worth of property value. And, um, my model is based on the the residential realm. Actually, I buy property, um, and I have to be all in for 65% of the stabilized value. Uh, because that's what the model was. I never read a book. I never went to a seminar before. I just kind of developed it myself. And I started buying properties, apartment buildings, the exact same way. So I have to be able to buy it, renovate it, be all in for sixty-five percent of that stabilized value. Um, and so, a lot of the buildings that I buy, you know, I'm into a building that's worth ten million dollars for about six, six and a half million dollars. So on the two hundred fifty million dollars worth of property, I only owe to, you know, lenders and, and my equity investors, uh, a little, it's it's like right at $150 million. So we have a lot of equity in our properties too.
1: Got it. Got it. So it's very interesting. You bring up that 65% because that's the exact number that I had when I was doing my single family for zero money down. (laughs) Right. Right. So I counted if I get at 65% ARV, which is after repair value, you should be able to, you know, do a second loan, which is, I call call it as a double closing of a loan, right? You have two loans, one loan is like, you do like a short-term loan, and at 65%, you buy it, you take, a, you take a rehab loan, and then you flip it to the
2: long-term loan, which means yep. you probably will that, be- That's my entire model. So yeah. I don't traditionally syndicate. I buy distressed assets. I'm, I'm bigger than some of the smaller investors, but not quite a hedge fund or a REIT. So, mm-hmm. And I'm willing to get my hands dirty. I'm willing to actually do the work. So I take on a little bit more distressed type properties. I only buy in A and B class areas, but the mm-hmm. properties are, are typically C class type properties that need physical improvements, better management, um, like really not not just value add, but like a total repositioning a lot of times. We're remarketing, rebranding, all that. And so we come in and we we fix it all up. And because we force appreciation, because we can make it happen um, and really create the appreciation versus speculating on appreciation and hoping values go up over the next five years, um, we're able to create a lot of equity in that first 12 months. And then we're able to turn around and refinance and cash out our investors. So instead of selling, I just refinance at like a 70% loan to value. That gives me enough money to then pay off my bridge loan Mm -hmm. or whatever that short-term construction loan is. And it helps me pay off my investors. And to me, it's more predictable. It's more predictable to know where interest rates and where the economy is going to be 12 months from now or 18 months from now than it is like maybe five or seven years from now. Five or seven years from now, we could have very different economy, very different political circumstances could have three different presidents in the next five years. Right? Yeah. So we just don't know. And for me, I like the predictability of buying at a wholesale price, creating appreciation and then cashing out my investors. Now it's, you know, for lack of a better term, house money in play, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So now we can let the property ride and we can hit, sit on it. doesn't matter what happens to the economy for the next 10 years. I have a long-term long amortization schedule, fixed interest rate loan, non-recourse loan in place where the market can go up, it can go down. I still have tenants in place paying the debt service, paying the operating expenses and putting cash in my pocket and I can ride this thing out because I don't owe any of my investors any more cash.
1: Got it, got it. So yeah, that's exactly the deep value add as how how I position it, right? Where you buy at really good value, very very low level value. You really put all your effort to push up the fossil appreciation, and
2: then you go and refi it in twelve to you know eighteen months, I guess. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? And and, uh, and we do some new construction stuff too down in the southeast. Okay. We'll build some townhouses. Like we'll do we'll do new construction. It'll be like an A or B plus kind of an area, mm-hmm. um, but it's not luxury. We do only workforce type housing, so um, right. we can build townhouses for about. $85,000 per unit, 80 to 90,000 per unit. And they'll rent for about 1300 bucks a month for us. And so that allows us to get the values where we need it to then refinance and do the exact same thing just for new construction. So, uh, we do a little bit of that and more repositioning of, of existing assets though.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. I, mean, I, I really like the model. I, I was doing it like two, three years ago and I don't know, for me, I got worried about the market and I start not doing, looking for deep value ed, and also deep value. is harder to find the even though you find it, what happened? The sellers are basically taking the value by pushing up the rent on, I mean pushing up the price on the deep value add. It becomes they, not a deep value add anymore.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and I don't I don't pay for the value, I don't pay a seller for the value that I'm gonna bring to the property, right? Okay. Okay. So there are some sellers that you know they're like, oh well, this could be worth this much. Yeah, but I have to create that value. You're not creating that value. Yeah. So we correct. find um we're we're a lot of times direct to seller. Uh, off market type properties. You know, we're big enough now, especially in Georgia and South Carolina, where we're getting, um, you know, we're kind of one of the first, we have the broker relationships where we're one of the top five buyers in town and you get those deals before they actually hit the market. Um, uh, So, but, but in a lot of other markets, I'm not, you know, the biggest buyer in town. So I I have to go Mm -hmm. off market, direct to seller kind of stuff. And we get a lot of our properties from mom and pops who have owned it for 20, 30 years or inherited the property. They just didn't put any more money back into it. Um, you know, the, the, the total debt on the property is very low, if at all. And, uh, they just don't want to put any more money into it. They don't want to do the work. So we buy it from them, or I buy a lot from smart entrepreneurs, really sharp people who make a lot of money in their traditional business. And they just put their money in real estate and then they didn't, have a joint venture partner. They never got educated, right? They don't have, they don't know how to manage a management company or interview a management company and they just get, you know, they get abused the business, right? So they're like, I'm making too much money in my traditional business. This thing's going to sink me. Let me just fire sale this apartment building. So yeah, we, uh, um, that's where we buy most of our properties from. And then, um, yeah. Again, we, we we reposition it. We do the stuff that that hedge funds aren't willing to do. And we're, we're qualified enough to take down a 200 unit building that needs a pretty heavy value add. Um, and do it that way. But like you said, though, James, I'm starting to buy a little bit more stabilized assets, more like 85, 90% occupied of just a little bit of tweaks in the common areas and, um, amenities, and then bumping up some rents. We're doing a little bit more of that right now, just because of where we are in the market cycle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Correct. That's absolutely. But you gave a lot of details there. I want to go a bit more detail into that. So you said you look for deals that is in class A and B, but more distressed, right? So, I mean, you're basically shrinking your
2: funnel as well, right? Because you're going for that. Uh, niche gets rich, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I see very niche. People say, Hey, real estate's my niche. No, real estate's an industry, right? That's not an <laughs> apartments. Isn't even a niche. Like you need to figure out what you are really, really good at. Mm-hmm. And what, one of the things that I'm really good at is 80 units to a hundred units. That's distressed. It's bigger. It's, it's too distressed for the small guys to get a loan on it because they don't have the, the, the background or the, um, uh, the resume to go and take down that kind of stuff and, and the qualifications to do that. Cause they haven't done it before. It's a big project, big value add. And at the same time, it's too distressed for the hedge funds because they just want to park money and let it sit, let it ride and let it cash flow from day one. So this is, this is my niche. It's A and B class areas, good areas, desirable areas, just distressed kind of properties. And, um, we're able to get in there and, uh, we have all the financing, all relationships all in place. We can raise the money uh, pretty easily because we've done it because we can cycle our money every 12 to 18 months. I don't have to wait five years to get my investors their money out. I can cycle it every 12 to 18 months. So as soon as I pay them back, guess what they say, let's go do another one. Mm -hmm. And then they're involved in, you know, three deals in five years versus one deal in five years. And it makes my life easier because I don't have to go and raise money from new people all the time.
1: Got it. Got it. That's a really good model. So does the investors after you cash out, when you pay them back, do they stay in the deal as well?
2: Yeah, So, so my, mine's a little bit different than traditional syndication. Mm-hmm. Usually me and my joint venture boots on the ground partners, we keep 70 to 80% of the equity in the deal. Okay. And then we pay a pref, uh, a fixed pref to our investors, regardless of the property's performance. So even if it's not cash flowing, it's predictable. Cause I know that, you know, if I'm borrowing 2 million bucks, I'm paying, let's say a 10% pref, I'm going to pay $200,000. That's just a cost of the deal. I got roofs, I got flooring, I got paint, I got cost of capital. It's an extra $200,000. So I build that into my model and then I can make those payments to them. They feel more confident, more comfortable because now they have a, a, a predictable return on their investment. Then I refinance, they get all their money back off the table and then they still maintain 20, 30% ownership without any money invested. And we're able to do that again and again and again. And so you know, with traditional syndicators, if I, if I try raising money from a tr- somebody who's used to a traditional syndication. They're like, why would I ever do that? Well, Mm -hmm. you get a predictable return. And secondly, you get 30% ownership. But if we roll your money in three different deals, it's actually 90% ownership, right? So 30%, 30%, 30%. And so overall, they're actually ahead of what they would do in a traditional syndication where they might get 70 or 80% of the equity in one deal. So um, it actually works out better for the investors. It works out better for me. Uh, but it's a lot of work on my part. We spend a lot of money. Uh, sometimes we spend a lot of money on advertising in new markets until we have those relationships built up. And then, uh, in order to find those off market direct to seller deals. And it's a lot of work. Like my business partner down in Georgia, uh, that I own a bunch of property with, dude, like he goes and sleeps at the properties for three nights a week. He spends four full days there, sleeps in a B class apartment, you know, on a, on a blow up mattress. The guys worth 25 million bucks. And then his brother, who's our other partner, is worth another twenty five million and they 're sleeping you know at the properties, doing the work, kicking the tables, making sure construction ends up on time on budget and that 's what you need to do, man. I see a lot of people who are trying to be this puppet master and they 're not willing to actually do the work of, uh, of of taking ownership over this thing and and they just want to go and syndicate and then go back off to whatever they 're doing and and dude to me, like there's something to be said about just having an old school uh, diligence and work mentality. Um, and what you can get done if you're willing to do that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Real estate is very, very powerful, right? Especially commercial real estate where you can fast appreciate. And especially if you are going to get majority of the equity in the deal, why not? I sleep right in 12 months. Seventy to eighty percent of this
2: deal is going to be mine. Why not work hard, right? And I, I'm it's, it's I'm a with season you. of your life, right? Yeah. If you're putting your head down for a year or eighteen months, but then you can generate millions of dollars of equity. Like, why not do that? And so, uh, right. yeah, that's just kind of the mentality that we take. Correct. Yeah,
1: it's it's very powerful to create wealth, and, and 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 I think the investors appreciate that as well because now you're able to give them back their money and all that, right? But but your model is assuming that. You know, you are able to refi into a long-term loan in the 12 to 18 months, right? So, what yep. happened
2: if that model breaks? Yep, absolutely. So that's that's the inherent risk with our model. Is what happens if rates change? What happens if banking tightens up? What does that all look like? So, a couple things. One, I don't think rates are going to change as much mm-hmm. in 12 or 18 months as they would maybe in five or seven years. So, to me, we underwrite the deal. Like right now, I just close on. 500 units. And I got a three, or two buildings around 250 units each last month, and I got a 3.83 and a 3.88 interest rate. Mm-hmm. Even right now, rates went up back. They're hovering around four, four and a quarter right now mm-hmm. uh, for stabilized assets. We're underwriting the deals with 4.75 to 5% interest rate on on the back end for a stabilized property. So we're taking on some of that, some of that. Um, we're underwriting it for that. We also underwrite our rents very, very conservatively. And we're at such a low basis in the property, usually around 60% of what that stabilized value is. We have options. So we can go like Fannie and Freddie are tightening up big time mm-hmm. right now. Yep. Um, that's okay, because we're at such a low basis that we can still go over to CMBS, uh, commercial mortgage-backed security, or a, or a life insurance company. And even though they offer a lower loan to value I'm okay with that. Cause I'm at a low enough basis. I can still cash out my investors. So worst case scenario, my investors still get their money back and we have a lower LTV loan. So maybe there's not some refi proceeds or anything like that, that we can take off the table. But at the end of the day, they're going to have more equity. You know, their equity is going to be worth more in the property and the cash flow is going to be more on a, on a, you know, recurring basis uh, for that. And, um, you know, I, and the other thing is, even if even when banks stopped lending to people in two thousand nine two thousand and ten guess what they were still lending to somebody and it was the people with the big balance sheets with stabilized portfolios and I have a big enough balance sheet and a, and a stable enough portfolio where i'll be able to get refinanced regardless of of what happens in the next twelve to eighteen months so i'm I'm not that uh concerned about it and again because mm-hmm. our low our basis is so low, we have such such high cash flow on these properties um, I have different options, and I have a good team. Yeah. I have a good yeah. team of mortgage brokers who, even if I had to slap another, you know, three-year loan on there, even if it was at six percent interest rate or six and a half percent interest rate, That's I still can fine. still cash flow it enough. Covers my operating expenses, covers my debt service, still puts cash flow in the bank. You know, it's a, it's a crappy conversation that I have to have with the, uh, with my equity investors, but they keep on making ten percent on their money, so they're happy you know, worst case scenario is they get their money back in forty eight months, then, you know, it is what it is. So uh I've taken a look at all the downside. I've taken I've talked to people with billion dollar portfolios and said, hey, poke holes in my model. And um and that's that's the inherent risk is what if you can't refinance. Um and so that's that's one of the things. The deals that I just closed last month, they were already in that 85, 90% occupancy range, like right at right at 90, 91, I think is what they were. Um and so we got we got a Fannie Mae loan actually on it that's a construction loan that we'll be able to put supplemental debt on it. So it's already a long-term loan, 30-year amortization, couple of years of interest only and then uh whenever we we create the appreciation um 12 months, 18 months from now, we'll be able to put supplemental debt, which is kind of like a second mortgage almost but through the same lender, so they're mm-hmm. cool with it. And so the only real risk I'm taking is the interest rate on on that that portion of the debt. It's about I have a seventeen million dollar mortgage on it right now, and then the other will be about another seven million dollars. Um, so the only real rate risk is, you know, I'm at three point eight percent on seventeen million dollars. Even if the, the other seven million goes to five percent, my blended cost of capital is still four and a quarter, right? Or, or maybe a little less. So, you know, that's that's one of the ways that we're, another way that we're uh, reducing that
1: ongoing risk. It's, it's very interesting. Now you're convincing me to do deep value add again. So, <laughs> because it's just so hard to mess up, right? I mean. Uh, yeah,
2: I, I, mean, I mean, the construction is where it all comes down to. Yeah, if you I stay mean, you're on putting, time and on budget, you're in good yeah. shape. But if you don't have a good construction partner, like you can, you can really get burned bad in the, the deep mm-hmm. value add stuff. So you just gotta understand what, what your team looks like, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. And for me, we're okay with it. We're, we're pretty good at it. And we have a really good construction team. My, my partner in Georgia, man, I put him toe to toe against anybody in the country from a construction standpoint. And, um, he can build new construction, he can renovate existing units. And so, and because he's had, he has the mentality of, let me go and sleep at the property three nights a week, uh, away from his family, away from his five kids, you know, he's willing to take that on because it's again, a season of his life. Um, like that's kind of partners that I like to partner up with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hustlers, right. That's, that's, they will go really really far in life. And that's what we need. It's very interesting. So is there any deal that you find that you didn't do that you think you should have done? You know, after you
2: passed on it, you realize, oh, I should have done that deal. Is there a deal that uh, something that's like a good, that? Good that good you... question. Let me think on this. Uh, we, we try to kill deals. I try to kill every deal that comes across my plate, especially mm-hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I try to look for every reason to walk away from every deal that comes across my desk. Okay. If I cannot kill the deal, then I know it's a good deal. Right. And so, you know, are there are there as soon as you're like, hey, well, I think I can scale back construction and make it work, wrong, wrong idea, wrong strategy. Because Mm -hmm. the last thing you want to scale back is the construction of the value add process. Because then your rents aren't going to hit where you expect them to hit because you're not able to attract better tenants or higher quality tenants and they don't see the value that you're adding to the property. Um, at the end of the day, like people are like, oh, well, I think we can make this one work. Now, the only way you can make it work is if you go back to the seller and negotiate a lower purchase price, because that's the only variable in this equation, you know, what rents are going to be is what rents are going to be. What the construction budget is, is what the construction budget is. The only variable here is the purchase price and, and, you know, you make your money on the, on the buy side, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, are there deals that I passed up on that I should have moved on? Maybe, but, but for me, man, I I don't have much of a risk tolerance. I only, I only buy stuff that's that I know that is very predictable to me. That's why I don't play the stock market. I can't Mm -hmm. control if, you know, Volkswagen I can't control if Elon Musk smokes a joint on public television and the (laughs) stock drops by 15%. You know, I can't control that. I like being able to control real estate and having very predictable returns for me and my investors. And if there's any sort of, and sometimes it's a gut check, you know, even if everything looks good on paper, but my gut doesn't feel good about it, I'll say no to a deal. It's just, I've seen enough deals go South and as quickly as we can build our net worth being in commercial real estate, one bad deal can take out your legs and, and wipe you out totally. So I'm just not willing to take on that risk, especially when it's, you know, takes so much work in order to get to where where we are. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I wanna to touch on your gut check thing
1: because uh, I know numbers doesn't lie and uh, you know, we are numbers guys, right? We wanna underwrite things, make sure things works on paper and all that. But I've walked out of a deal because everything works very well, but, and the numbers looks good, but there's something wrong in that deal, I don't feel good, right? So, yeah what I didn't discover. And and I've walked out from that kind of deal as well. And that's very important. I mean, real estate is not only a science where everybody says it's a numbers game and people who are good in numbers will do it. But there's a lot of art to it as well, where it's just something wrong
2: somewhere. And it comes from experience. And it Comes know, from it experience. Is, that's the only way you get that. It's yeah. from, from experience. Yeah. And it's usually personnel kind of things that, that make me walk from a deal. I just not comfortable with that joint venture partner or with that correct, correct. management company or with whatever the seller's saying, you can kind of see through the lines once in a while,
1: yeah.
2: whatever that is. And so, yeah, I, I mean, my model is I'm really good at raising money. I'm really good at sourcing deals. We're, we're pretty good at creating, like we, we can handle a lot of the back office type stuff. I'm, I'm back in Cleveland, Ohio now is where I live. And we can handle a lot of the management side of things, collecting of rents, work orders, tenant communication, all that kind of stuff, all the administrative side from here in Cleveland, we just need a local boots on the ground partner and some local property managers, maintenance personnel. And I always have a joint venture partner locally. And so if that joint venture partner isn't strong enough, then usually I'll I'll walk away from the deal because man, I think it's important to have somebody with, Mm -hmm. with vested interest, with equitable interest in the deal who's local to the property, who can go put their eyes on it a couple times a month to keep everybody honest, you know, to keep the management company honest, to keep the local property manager, maintenance personnel, leasing agents, and just come in and kick the tables once a a month and just let people know that we're paying attention. Because if you don't pay attention, then they take advantage of you.
1: Yeah, it's it's a hard work. I know exactly how you feel in terms of uh, how much hustle and how much detail and how much you have to be on top of the property managers. It's not their baby, it's your baby, right? And there's so yep. much of details that if you don't ask them, they're just going to slack off, right? Yes, you know, they, are, they are paid differently from what we are paid for. And we are the exactly. And it's just a, completely a different uh, ownership level. That's very interesting. So is there any deal that you think after you bought, uh, it didn't match from what you thought in the beginning, right? You thought, this is how I'm going to execute it. But once you buy, you thought, oh, it's completely different from what I
2: thought. And how did you overcome it? Yeah. I mean, uh, every deal is a learning experience, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you get, you get kicked in the or punched in the gut enough times and eventually you learn, you learn, you learn, you learn. Fortunately, you know, when I was growing my portfolio, I bought my first building in 2012 and I bought it for Uh, an eight unit building for $30,000, right? So I'm in Cleveland, Ohio buying units for $4,000 a unit. I put another, I don't know, 50 grand into it. So I'm all in for $10,000 a unit. And, uh, And it's hard to lose, right? And so in 2012, 2013, 2014, as I'm growing my portfolio, while I'm going through these learning curves, the market's getting better. And that was able to absorb a lot of my screw-ups early on. So I still made money on every single deal uh, that I did, even though I was learning on a lot of these things. Um, There's only one building, a 44-unit building, that I bought about two, three years ago, maybe, um, that I've lost money on. And uh, it was one of those things, hey, I saw the leases. I saw the rent roll. It was 80% occupied. And um, I bought it from a guy that I know, somebody that I actually... No, and so I bought forty-four units, and he's like, "Yeah, man, eighty percent occupancy. Great, man. I'm gonna come in. I'm gonna renovate the last whatever nine units, turn those over. Uh, I got a local team. He was out of state, so like my team can come in, clean it all up, clean up the, the common areas. I think I can make three hundred thousand dollars on this thing in the next twelve months, uh, pretty easily, and it'll cash flow a little bit in the meantime. So I buy it, and I find out it's only twenty-five percent economically <laughs> occupied. Okay. So there's thirty-three or 35 tenants or something in place and only 11 of them are actually paying okay. rent. Correct. And so I learned my lesson there. You know, don't, it's, it's not about occupancy. It's about collections. Collection. And so going in and, and this is a buddy of mine, right? This is somebody I've known for many years and, uh, and grab dinner with him, his wife, my wife, and, and, uh, uh, not a lot of times, but a few times and, uh, close enough where I'd call him a buddy. And all of a sudden, he sells me a building, tells me it's 80% occupied, doesn't tell me it's only collecting 25%. And then all of a sudden, I had to kick out 25 tenants, 24 tenants, and turn over 24 additional units. So imagine what that cost does now to uh, the $300,000 I thought I was going to make. And this was, this was one of the only times I like I, I brought an investor in, and he wanted 50, 50 of the deal. Let me bring the money. You, you do the deal. Okay, cool. And I um, ended up stro- stroking a check for about $35, $40,000 when it was all said and done. And I could have gone to that investor and said, Hey, man, you want to fit? Like, I need 20 grand from you. I'm putting up 20 grand of my money. We're selling this thing. It's a pain in the butt. We're going to lose money on it, but, you know, we got to get rid of it. And that's part of the deal. And instead, I stroked the entire check, gave him 100% of his money back. And because he didn't make a return, I gave him equity in another deal of mine without him having to put up any money, just kind of soften that blow. And so I think when you do the right thing by your investors, uh, word spreads, you know, he says great things about me. He wants to invest in more deals with me and stuff now, and you just do the right thing knowing that there's always another deal. There's always another opportunity. Um, that one we could have held onto the property long-term and let it cash flow. That's a cool thing about buying apartment buildings. You can really screw up. And if if you had to, you could hold on to it, manage it, let it cash flow for the next 10 years. And eventually you'll actually make money on these things, right? Even with that Mm -hmm. big of a screw up. Um, but for me and where my long-term vision is and and my team and everything else, it was just more of a C-class type property It took up too much management and too many headaches. It wasn't big enough. We couldn't really scale it. So, um, we made just a business decision to sell it and to eat that. Eat that loss. Um, but it's the only, it's the only building I ever lost money on. And, uh, now we've gone through pretty much everything and we've gotten kicked in the crotch enough times where we know what to look for, um, across every building. Like it's very hard to pull wool over our our eyes unless it's, it's like grossly fraudulent on the seller's part. So, um, We've, uh, another big thing that, that I didn't know early on that I wish I should have done. That's always a consistent issue with every building we've ever bought is, um, is like the, the plumbing and the drain tiles leaving the building. It's always one of those unknowns. So now we spend, you know, three to $5,000 to scope every single drain line in every building that we, uh, put under contract to ensure that there's not going to be this massive plumbing bill, um, unexpected plumbing bill once we buy the property. So that's one of the things that's been a big deal, you know, and and then just verifying collections, like those two things from a financial due diligence and a physical due diligence perspective, like those two things that we've dialed in now. And, uh, we always did everything else. We always inspected the roofs and every unit and electrical panels. And, you know, uh, um, one of the other things that I, that I didn't do early on that I do now, Uh, and we've done for many years now is I used to only walk the vacant units and, and the, uh, uh, the common areas, right. And the mechanical rooms. And then all of a sudden you realize that not everything, like they're not showing you all the vacant units. There's other vacant units that they're telling you're occupied. They just didn't want you to see them. Um, and they're like, I bought buildings where tenants were turning on and off their, their faucet with a wrench because there was no, there was no actual (laughs) faucet. Right. Uh, so you don't realize a lot of that stuff early on when you're a dumb kid, but, um, I've been through it all man, Been (laughs) through everything. We walk every single unit on a 500 unit apartment building. We will walk every single unit and we'll put a, a report together on every single unit. It's a one page, just kind of condition report. We'll take you know, 30 pictures of every single unit, we put it all into like a Google drive or a Dropbox folder. And that way we have all the information we could ever need on this property. We're not relying on our, on our, um, uh, on our, our memory to look up all that stuff. It's all there. Our contractors can see it during the entire due diligence period, all that stuff. And so, um, I I think everything's a learning curve, right? I think you learn, you learn from everything and, uh, the thing in this business though, is like if you can get past all those learning curves, if you can get past some of those losses and some of those getting punched in the stomachs, um, eventually you got it, Your process is so dialed in, like they can't pull wool over your eyes that you cannot lose on deals. Right. And that's why we walk away from a lot of deals that we do because, they're wait, they 're waiting for somebody who's who 's an idiot who doesn 't know what they're doing to come in and buy their property uh, and overpay for it or not do the due diligence that they 're supposed to be doing and all these other things so um, but but eventually you know what you 're doing enough where your risk is so minimized because you 've done all the due diligence on these things it 's a very predictable business at the end of the day like you said it 's all about numbers right
1: yeah yeah i mean it's it 's crazy nowadays right i mean uh, with the market being as hard as Right now, with so many people looking for deals, there's so many bidding war right so what what nowadays the the smarter thing that a lot of brokers and sellers are doing they say day one hard money right now they lock you in right so you go into a bidding war, you pay this huge amount of hard money, and sometimes they don't give an, give you early access right so now you're locked in, you can find <laughs> a thousand and one things and you you're locked in right you, you can oh, yeah
2: I, I don't do that stuff i don't play that game yeah, um, yeah. i think I think when you Especially, and you don't need to, if you're, if you're off market direct to seller, Correct. if you're going through brokers, they're yeah. going to do that to you, you know? Um, and there's some people who have crazy money and they're willing to risk that. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to risk any of that stuff. Um, I, you know, a lot of people, they spend a lot of time on ROI, return on investment. I spend a lot of time on return on ROI, return of investment, you know, and making sure I get all my money back. I'd never, ever want to risk principal. And so if, I mean that, that deal, that's just too risky of a deal. If they want hard earners money from day one and I haven't already walked the entire property, I'm not interested in doing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, I think once you get to a point where you can, if you're partnered up with a great sponsor or you are a great sponsor yourself and you have the, the, you know, business acumen that like you have James, mm-hmm. uh, or that I have, like I'm able to posture up with these sellers now and kind of say, Hey, yeah, no problem. You can go steal somebody's earnest money, that's okay. You can go ahead and do that, but they're not going to be able to close on this deal because you're lying about the condition of the property or the financials or whatever. Or if you're willing to actually sell it to me, give me my, my opportunity to, be, to do my due diligence and shoot straight with me on everything. I promise you I'll be I'm more capable of closing than any of the other people that you're getting bids from right now. So or that you're getting uh, uh, offers from right now. And so I've been able to kind of build up my credibility in that way where Sellers are willing to take less money and, and offer me better terms than they would maybe with somebody else because they know that I can close on the property. They don't want to get dragged through the mud, right? Correct.
1: Correct. Yeah, this is it's very interesting nowadays the way the market's being played, right? They're putting all this handcuff of hard money day one. And there's another handcuff where they said you must take a broke, they must you must do lending with our own in-house lending. So that's another handcuff, right? That's two yeah. three, two or three handcuffs that brokers are putting on seller. And the third subtle handcuff that they do nowadays, when they close, they send out a mail saying that, oh, this buyer paid day one, you know, huge amount of money, 500,000. They're telling everybody else. Yeah. They're trying to set you, that
2: expectation, right? If you,
1: if you want to come and uh, buy deals nowadays, you better be ready, right? So <laughs> many handcuffs are being put on buyers. But I think a lot of sellers, you know, if they want to work with a good buyer, right? Who people who want to really do business, they don't want, who want to earn, who want to just make the money on earnest money and waste a lot of time getting people to walk through all their units and getting their stuff all being nervous, right? So just find a guy who's willing to do it and who is a true buyer, who knows what he's doing and can close, right? So
2: the, the good yeah. brokers with long-term visions and long-term goals. yeah know to find quality buyers. And that's better than just anybody who raises their hand with earnest money. You know, correct, correct. Uh, there's a lot of, like there's in every, in every hot market, there's people who are mm-hmm. short sighted, who got into real estate real quick, just because they wanted to get rich quick kind of a thing. And, um, you know, and, and, and they'd rather just do it that way. And then anybody who raises their hand, they're willing to go with. And, um, those aren't the brokers you want to work with. You want to work with the people who have been around the block a few times, who understand what a good buyer looks like, can build those ongoing relationships because, um, you know, as soon as the market shifts, if, if things cool, cool off, it's going to clean out all the, all the unqualified buyers and unqualified brokers as well. Correct. 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 So let's go to a bit
1: more personal side of things, right? So... What I like about you is you're very, very positive, right? So you like to look at life very positively and it's hard to do because sometimes you always have something negative that comes in, right? So do you want to explain about (laughs) in this business, there's something negative that you always want to talk about, but how do you maintain that positivity?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, like I I, I told you the story when we met up a couple (laughs) of weeks ago or, or a month ago, um, Yeah. I mean, just, just less than 90 days ago, I was out golfing and I got rocketed to the face with a golf ball, hundred miles an hour from about 30 yards away. It shattered my upper maxilla bone. It knocked out four of my front teeth and just shredded my gums and my, and my lip open. And, um, I like bleeding like crazy. I looked down, I'm like, Oh, I feel my, my teeth dangling from my gums and I looked down at the ground and I kind of took a knee so to make sure I didn't pass out and um, I looked down at the grass I'm like man this grass is really really well manicured like beautiful grass here you know <laughs> on this golf course and I'm like how the hell am I able to keep up such a positive attitude in this you know I'm, I'm thinking about my thoughts I'm, I'm very reflective in that regard. And I was like, well, here's, here's why I could see it positive because I didn't get, I got hit in my mouth and not in my eyeball, right? Or not in my temple. I could be blind or dead if this thing was an inch higher than where it was. And so, um, man, I, I don't know if it's law of attraction. I don't know if it's, you know, you can call it God, you can call it, you know, the universe You can call it whatever. But I think when you put the positivity out, it comes full circle, right? And it's kind of like you reap what you sow kind of a thing. And I, I sow seeds of positivity. And so I jump in the golf cart and I get taken back to the clubhouse. You know who's dining in the clubhouse? There's two dentists and an ER nurse having dinner in the clubhouse. They they put me in there. They look at my teeth. They drop what they're doing. They take me to their, their uh, dental office, 15 minutes down the road. They stitch me all up. They put my teeth back in and I'm able to save my teeth. And 90 days later, you couldn't even tell that this whole thing happened. Like I'm still going through some cosmetic stuff, but Mm -hmm. overall, like, like it wasn't, it wasn't a massive, like, like it was a terrible situation, but I think because I was positive, it all just kind of came, came to fruition. So, you know, one of the things that that I've always practiced is not saying I have to do something, but saying I get to do something. When I go out to dinner with a bunch of my friends and I pick up the tab and they're like, dude, you don't have to do that. No, I don't have to do it, but I get to. The reason that I do what I do is so that I can help people out and I can pay it forward, right? Oh, hey, you don't you don't have to uh, you know cover that bill, you don't have to do this. No, but I get to, right? I had to uh, eat soup for about a month afterwards, but I'm thinking, you know, I'm eating a tomato bisque basil soup, right? I don't have to eat mud pies like people do on the other side of the earth. I don't have to walk two miles each way to go and get fresh water. Like people have to do on the other side of the earth. Right. And, and some side on, on some people on this side of the earth, like I get to eat soup, right? I get to eat something that's a bisque that has basil in it. Like, are you kidding me? Like there's people who would kill to be able to eat that kind of stuff. And you know, I, I didn't have 14 teeth knocked out. I only had four teeth knocked out. And I think when you just compare it and you put it in, in that type of perspective of, man, it could have been way worse you know, like the situation could have gone and, and there's still people, even with me, with my teeth dangling from my mouth, being in that circumstance, I'm still in a better circumstance than a lot of other people who don't have any food, who don't have any shelter, who don't have any clothes, who don't have any support. They're, they're, you know, being trafficked by like human trafficking, like all that kind of crazy stuff. Right? Like even when I have to go out and raise, I had to raise 7 million bucks for deals last month. And, uh, no, I don't have to raise 7 million bucks. I get to raise 7 million bucks. That's a pretty awesome problem to have, you know? And I think just putting it in that perspective of of shifting your I have tos to I get to um, will really make you more uh, uh, gratuitous or or have more gratitude for life.
1: But was it because of your parents or do you think because uh, you just had some uh, event in your life that you think
2: now I have to change my time or is this how you have been Yeah, that's a good question. My mom's always been very positive. My mom's always been, hey, you know, you have something else to compare it to, right? Like compare it to this, compare it to that. And I think that's probably what planted the seed of always looking at it from, yeah, you're right. I guess it could be way worse, right? It mm. could, could have been, um, totally different circumstance or, or, you know, uh, if that's a, she always used to say, Hey, if that's your biggest problem today, you, you got a pretty good life, Tim. You know, <laughs> and, uh, when I was growing up, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like my basketball just popped. If that's your biggest problem today, it's a pretty good problem to have. You know, you're safe, you're secure, you're healthy, you, you know, you get your family, you got people who love you. Um, you got food, food on the table and clothes on your back and a roof over your head. And like all those kinds of things, like you put it in perspective there's people dealing with a lot worse things, and yeah, I think uh, uh my mom kind of rooted that into me maybe early on, and it definitely stuck and uh man i just I just show gratitude, especially once you have kids, you know, and you realize uh man, like all I want is their safety and their security and their healthiness and their happiness, and as long as they're happy, man i'm happy, that kind of a thing um, that's that's really amplified it over the past four years I have a four year old and a two year old now and so um, just putting things in the in in perspective that way has been a big deal. Awesome, awesome. Is there one proud moment in your life
1: that you think you will be remembering it for your entire life? That's a good question.
2: James, you got some good questions today, buddy.
1: <laughs> um, I want you to think and answer. <laughs> yeah, I, it, you know, I mean, I mean, is there one one proud moment that you yeah. think, ha, I, I, you know, at the end of your life, you're going to say that I'm really, really proud that I did that and it's going to be, you know.
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's one specific moment, but maybe just like kind of how I live my life. Um, okay. I, I, I try to do it on a daily basis, right? And maybe it's not something profound. Maybe it's not something that's like one specific thing that was a catalyst. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm driving to the office today to come and talk to you and some dude cuts me off. I'm like, dude, he's, maybe, he's got, maybe he's got some priorities or something going on. I don't know what other people are going through, you know, and mm-hmm. for me to judge and get pissed off because somebody cut me off why would I do that? Um, I I think uh, uh, really, really, uh, I'll tell you if there's a really proud moment once my kids grow up to be decent human beings, you know, Mm -hmm. and making sure that um, I want to live my life as an example of what an exceptional life can look like. So I want people to be like, hey, if Tim brought some kid from a blue collar family in a blue collar town um, outside of Cleveland, Ohio, can build up a big portfolio and still maintain good health, and still maintain positivity, and still maintain great relationships with his wife and with his children, with his friends, and um, you know, still, still, you know, engage and 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 maybe not be balanced, but but have harmony in his life. Like if this guy can do it, I know I could do it. If I can inspire people. Um, whether that be a one, one moment in time by a Facebook post or a, an event that I host or being on a podcast, if I can inspire people to just be their best, which is, which is what I have on my wall here. Um, and, and that's, and that's, that's not do that's be, you know, that's like consume that all altogether. It doesn't have to be the best. It'd be your best, right? There's always going to be somebody with bigger, more, more capable, more resources, more whatever. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's healthy to compare yourself to other people, but to compare yourself to yourself and making sure that you're advancing, um, on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis, uh, is a big deal. And so, you know, I mean, I, I think I just try to, uh, you know, make my kids proud, make my mom proud, make my wife proud, make my friends proud, inspire other people. And, um, and I try to do it more than a daily activity versus just do it one time and, and look at that one, that one moment. Um, you know, try to give back and try to, like, I, I had a sweets to the Cavs games, uh, when LeBron was here in Cleveland. All right. And, uh, so what was that two years, a year or two ago, two years ago, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it was last year, I think. And so last year, uh, I had a suite to the Cavs game. I got the entire series for the first, um, uh, uh, series, I forget who they're playing. But essentially, when you buy a suite, you get it for the entire series, however many games they play at home, and they played four games at home. And so, wow. you know, the first game I went to, I brought some business partners, and uh, was able to pay for the suite that way. And then, um, and then the second game, I brought some family. And then the third game, I'm like, hey, I was excited to go, but like, not as excited as I was maybe the first or second time. And I'm like, somebody else deserves this more than I do because I've already had this experience, right? Like how can I pay this forward? And so I posted on social media. Um, and I got a suite to the calves game. I have 18 tickets that I can give away a couple parking passes, stocked with food and drinks and whatever you guys want. Like, does anybody know of a family or a few families that I can give these tickets to that maybe wouldn't have this experience on their own, but, but really deserve because of how good of a, of people that they are. And man, like, it got, it got so much momentum. It got so many shares and then the news picked it up and came did a story on it. And I had about five or 600 applications that came through for people nominating other people to, to get tickets to this, this cab suite. And so, um, really, really, it was actually, it was really hard to break it down and find essentially, I, I found four or five families. I think of five families three four tickets a piece that I gave the tickets to. And, um, it was pretty easy to narrow it down to like 25 because I, I wanted somebody who had maybe faced adversity, overcame that adversity, and then found a way to pay it forward, not just mm-hmm. overcoming it, but actually paying it forward and create, creating a difference. And so, you know, there was, there was one girl whose sister died of an accidental mm-hmm. overdose of drugs. And now this, her, this, this girl who's still alive, her younger sister, um, goes around and speaks at different schools about opioid problems and drug problems and how to... Um, you know, overcome that and different resources to to plug into uh, for that, you know? And so I'm like, wow, this girl's at the age of 16 years old, making an impact on the world. Like she deserves some tickets. There was another um, gentleman who lost his daughter to a congenital heart defect. She was three years old, you know, and loses his daughter to this congenital heart defect. And instead of like, I mean, I can only imagine how dark of a place he must've been in. And he ends up opening up a, a, a nonprofit organization to help families with other kids with congenital heart defects, to give them the support and the help and the conversations and everything, and making a massive impact up here in Cleveland, Ohio, right? This guy's such a good guy. I give him the tickets and he gives them to one of the people that that are in his nonprofit, you know? Mm. And, and it's <laughs> like, man, these people are just amazing individuals, you know? And so, uh, I found five awesome families like that, that we were able to give the tickets to and like doing stuff like that really makes me feel good. And what's even better is that there were 500 people who I was able to create a catalyst by doing this, uh, who now 500 people are, are thinking in a positive way about people who make a positive impact on their life, you know, Mm -hmm. and just that positive ripple effect, um, that that's created, I think is really, really powerful and, and it was really, really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. That's,
1: that's what I, when I talk to you, I get very inspired because it's not about the portfolio of real estate or what, right? It's how you look at life and how you look at things, right? Is yeah. how you think
2: possible. And that's what, that's the most important uh, when I look at a person, right? So that's yeah. really awesome. <laughs> yeah. And you do an awesome job with it, man. I mean, and you realize that it's not, it's not the portfolio. It's not the money that's noble. It's what you can do with the money. Correct. That's noble Correct. and, and utilizing it for, for good, like, I could afford a, a really expensive, fancy, exotic car, and I drive a $20,000 Jeep, just because I don't really care, right? I know that there's a bigger impact I can make by being a better steward of my capital, putting it in more deals, or paying it forward um, in ways like that. So yeah. uh, I get more fulfillment from that than from maybe driving something fancy. Yeah,
1: right? it's, even for me, I can't really imagine driving an exotic car because I really, do I really need it? I mean. I,
2: yeah, it at the end from- of the day it's like it'd be cool. I I'd rather just go rent one, you know. Rent yeah. <laughs> one. I, I know I'd have buyer's remorse. I just know myself personally uh-huh. and I know that as soon as I bought it I'd be like I don't really need this, you know. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and you can't really drive fast say, anyway. it,
2: And and here's the thing. Like I like watches, you know. I like um clocks, I like taking nice vacations. I like traveling um first class. you know, like, I like that kind of stuff. I like making memories, mm-hmm. um, and traveling the world. I, I love all that. So that's where I get my, okay. my, 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 drive from, you know, on, on making a lot of money, you know, for other people, they like fancy cars, they like fancy houses. That's okay. Uh, I got a good buddy, man. He, he drives a Rolls Royce and has a multiple hundred thousand dollar watches, you know? But I know he doesn't do it for Flash to impress other people. He does it because when he looks down at his watch and he when he gets into his car, he, he always sits back and he's like, man, I had to overcome some adversity. I had to go through some shit in order to get this watch, in order to be able to afford this car. And I've had to grow as an individual, as a person, and make an impact on enough other people's lives positively that then the universe came back and gave me enough money to be able to afford this car and afford this watch. And, and so I think it, it depends on perspective. And if that's how you look at it, I, like, I, I have nothing against people who have fancy, nice things, material type things, because I know he's one of the most giving people that I've ever met as well. And so it just, uh, uh, yeah, man, it, it, it's perspective, I guess, Damn. right? It's
1: perspective. Yeah.
2: Yep.
1: Awesome, Tim. So why don't you tell our audience how to
2: get hold of you? Yeah, I I mean, I'm, I'm pretty active on social media. Find me on Facebook, Tim Bratz. Uh, I run my own Facebook account. You know, it's not somebody else running it. Uh, I do some education stuff on how to get involved in apartments and, and things, but hit me up with, with a message there if you're looking for formal education, but I give a lot of, away a lot of free content, a lot of free insight and I try to provide a lot of value on social media and stuff. So just connect with me on Facebook. That's going to be the best way. And um, yeah, man, James, I appreciate all the value that you give and all mm-hmm. the value that you create and all the content that you put out there. And uh, man, you're, you're Creating the ripple effect yourself on, on making a positive impact on people's lives. So, appreciate yeah. you too, brother.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the show. It was really a very inspiring show, I'm sure, for me and for my listeners,
0: and everybody's going to be enjoying it.
2: Appreciate Again. it, brother.
0: Thank you so much. All right. Bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook, it's the audio version of his best selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free along with other valuable resources by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for multifamily investors group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.